how did everybody enjoy the earthquake this past week? Was that a good time? Wow, man, I was like uh, within 60 minutes of that quake happening, I got an email from some group out in Colorado, apparently Colorado, I didn't even know this, it had an earthquake, and then D.C. with the 5.8, 5.9 earthquake, and a lot of scriptures about the end of the world, and they've pinpointed it down, so you might want to write this down, September the 26th <laughs> this year, is things that come in, and the backup date, which is actually very helpful, the backup date... <laughs> To it is the very next day, the 27th. What irritates me about when those dates are given is a lot of times the backup date is quite a ways away. And, you know, it's kind of hard to keep all that in your memory. But this is pretty simple. So if it doesn't happen the 26th, you know the very next day, the 27th, whammo. So it's right there together. We were, we were actually in staff meeting at the office when it happened. And, man, we had the windows open. It was a beautiful day, as you know. Tuesday was a great day. And it just sounded like a really big truck was coming down the street with a bunch of stuff in the back of it. But then it just kept getting louder. And when the building started to shake, I thought, man, that's one big truck. <laughs> My goodness. So uh, we survived it. Then we've got the hurricane. We've got earthquakes and hurricanes. What in the world's going on here? I don't know. But uh, we're talking about suffering. And... Um, First Peter, we, you know, we're going through this series on suffering. That's the whole context of it. And here's the thing I really want to say in a nutshell this morning. I want to try to talk about in just a few moments. Man, it doesn't seem like suffering's going away, does it? I mean, this, this, this suffering deal isn't ending quickly. It, it just hangs with us. And there's so much of it in this world, whether it's the result of some huge natural disaster or it's crime or it's just health problems or financial problems. It's just not going away. There's a lot of suffering in this world. And, and what, what I've been thinking about is, is, is there a way to manage this? Like when Peter starts off this letter, he talks about a living hope. That's, I mean, just those words together, living hope, sounds really cool. Then he talks about the fact that we can have a faith that is, the worth of it is greater than gold. And we can be filled with inexpressible and glorious joy. This is big stuff. And then he gets into all this suffering. And I'm wondering as I'm going through this, okay, how can I realize those things? Really? You know? So I'm suffering. And when I'm in the midst of, whether I'm feeling the suffering directly or I'm just knowing about somebody else's suffering, inexpressible joy isn't the first thing that comes to my mind. A faith greater than gold isn't the first thing that comes to my mind. I mean, this living hope. This is not like, oh, yes, living hope. I don't think of that right away. So is there like a process? Is there like a plan? Is there some kind of biblical thing that we see not only in First Peter but other places where I can grasp these things? This is what I want to talk about this morning. And this message isn't necessarily, woo, you know, but it's, there's, a, there's a plan, I think, that kind of shows itself and is quite prominent as you, as you look for it. And what I've noticed is, is in the context of suffering, different places where the Bible talks about suffering, this idea rises to the top and it's discipleship. And that's why I've named this message, why discipleship is the answer. Why it's the answer. So let's pray and let's dive into the text for this week. Lord, uh, we do live in a world of suffering. There are people suffering all up and down this east coast this morning uh, from the hurricane. Uh, I haven't heard of widespread tragedy, but I know that I heard last night that a young boy, a hurricane came through, hit a tree, and now this young child of 11 years old is dead. And uh, all the family and friends of that family 
uh, feel tremendous suffering this morning. I mean, some of us, like, our power's out. We're like, oh, my gosh. But this family has lost a son. And this suffering deal just keeps raging on and on. Lord, speak to us this morning. What is it we need to hear from your word? God, what do we need to hear as a church family? What do we need to hear as an individual about suffering? In Christ's name, amen. All right, let's just read the text. 1 Peter 5, verse 1. I appeal to you as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's suffering, and one who also will share in the glory that is to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be. Not greedy for money, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. All right, now obviously here, everybody, we're talking, Peter's talking specifically to pastors. All right, so that is true. But you can make a case pretty easily pretty easily here and all throughout the Bible that what's being said here by Peter is repeated by other people that affects every single one of us, not just somebody who has the title pastor on their life. Now, theologians call this idea the priesthood of all believers. Jesus Christ talks about the need for us to make disciples, that all of us are in this disciple-making process. And so even though Peter's writing specifically to pastors, the principles that he talks about affect every single one of us, and it's something that all of us should get involved with, and it's something that has to do with suffering in this world. So putting that in context, let's go back to a very talked-about verse very often, Matthew 28, 19. We call it the Great Commission, Jesus' final words in the Gospel of Matthew. Very well known. If you've been in church any amount of time, you've probably heard this before. Jesus says, go make disciples. The word disciple or discipleship sometimes carries kind of a, you know, it's like a, a dark cloud that hangs over a little bit in our world today. And why would that be? Well, we talk about people who are disciples of Charles Manson. Not a good thing. Or people who are disciples or were disciples of Jim Jones. Also not a good thing. So we tend not to talk about a lot of that anymore. What in the world is discipleship? Discipleship, everybody, is basically very simple, very simple. I thought about it for years and never really had a good explanation. It finally dawned on me to disciple somebody else basically means you're mentoring them. You're almost like you're parenting them. It's like a big brother or a big sister. You're nurturing them in their life. And there's a couple things about discipleship here that I want you to write down. A disciple is a student or a learner. It's pretty simple at that. They're a student. In Jesus' day, in Jesus' day, here's how discipleship worked. You know, you saw somebody, who's, they were a rabbi, they're a teacher of God's word, and you would go to them and say, you know, can I be your disciple? Can I be your follower? You would approach them, and they would either say yes or no. They would say, yeah, there's no way I want you following me around. Forget it, you're out. Or they'd say, hey, yeah, okay, sure. You, and, and you got really, I mean, you guys became a family. So you like became a family member of this rabbi. And they just taught you every day how the scriptures made sense of the things that you were facing, like whether good things or bad things, right? And that's, that's what it looked like. Now, Jesus changed that whole model. Not in a massive way, but in a very small way, but very important way. What did he do? 
Did his disciples come to him? Do you ever read about his disciples coming to him saying, okay, hey, Jesus, we, Rabbi, can we follow you around? We want you to be our disciple. We want you to be our rabbi. That's not how it happened. What we're told is that Jesus Christ spends like all night up in the mountains and he's praying and praying and really seeking God. And after he does it, he comes down and he calls them. So he switches it around. It's very intentional and spirit-led. That's something I want you to know. We'll come back to it later. All right, you have to be one to make one. What does that mean? You've got to be a disciple to make a disciple. <laughs> very important distinction. And then Jesus says to go make disciples. He doesn't say go, to, go make converts. He's going to build the church. A lot of times we talk about the big exciting things like the Billy Graham Crusades or things similar to that and, you know, stadium full of people and they play just as I am and people walk up and that's very, very exciting. But Jesus says that he would build the church and our goal here is to go and make disciples, not converts, which is very interesting. Discipleship is highly relational. Conversion isn't, right? Billy Graham didn't personally know all those people, that, all those thousands of people who would walk up. So conversion can be just, I don't know, but discipleship by its very nature has to be highly personal. And here's the thing that gets me. There, there are three times I want to highlight in the scripture that in the context of suffering, everybody, remember we're talking about suffering here, in the context of suffering, discipleship kind of rises to the top. All right? The first one we're talking about, uh, Matthew chapter uh, 28, 19, where the Great Commission is given. So that was a total context of suffering right there. What was happening there? Jesus Christ had been arrested, he'd been beaten, he'd been crucified, and now he's risen from the dead. And that cloud of suffering, all of what Jesus Christ went through, is hanging over top of the disciples. And they're still like, whoa, what just happened? And he says, go make disciples, and he'd do that. At the end of the Gospel of John, John chapter 21, same thing happens. Peter's still rocked, not only from the suffering that Jesus Christ went through, but because he denied him. And Jesus says what? I want you to go feed my sheep. So another discipleship theme coming up. And here, Peter, he's at the end of his life. He knows that his days are numbered. We're at the end of this book that he's written. There's persecution widespread, and he knows his days are numbered. And what does he say at the end of this book that's totally about suffering? He says, you need to be a disciple. You need to be a disciple maker. Discipleship is really, really important. So here we go. Three points about it that I see here. The first one is this. Stay under the influence. It's really important that we stay under the influence of God. Now, why do I say that? Because Peter says this in the beginning. He says, look, he says, I'm a witness of the sufferings of Christ. And that word witness is really important to the context of this, of this passage we're talking about. Because the word that he uses for witness is a highly personal word. And it's the same word that we get martyr from. So Peter's saying, Peter's saying, I personally witnessed the suffering of Jesus Christ. And because I have a personal relationship with him, as he suffered and was martyred, I also was martyred along with him. I suffered with him because of the personal influence that he has had in my life. I witnessed it. I was martyred with him. I hurt and suffered with him. We have to stay under the influence. And what he's emphasizing here is that need of spending time with God every day. Now, you might say, well, man, that's nothing new. Churches talk about that all the time. I want to give you a little different thought about that, if I can, this morning. In Matthew 5, Jesus Christ says that we are the salt of the earth. And he says, if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? He says, then you're the light of the world. You know what the reality is? is Jesus isn't saying that I am salt or you are salt or you're light and I'm light. We're not. He's light, right? 
one of his famous I am statements. I am the light of the world. I'm not, I'm not the light of the world. How, how am I? How can I possibly participate in being the light of the world? Why? Because I hang out with the light, right? So Moses, we're told, spends a lot of time in prayer with God, talking with God, focusing on his relationship with God. And then it says that he has to put a veil over his face because his face is all lit up. He's got to put this little curtain thing over his face because he's been so much time. He was influenced so much by that. Same thing with salt. What does salt do? Salt preserves against corruption. Now, I'm not salt. But if I spend enough time with the salt shaker, so to speak, right, I get a little salty. The same thing is happening here. Now, you might say, all right, okay, this is great. Churches talk about this all the time. I need to spend more time with God. This is nothing new. It's not rocket science. Here's what I want you to think about this morning. You shouldn't spend time with God just for you. You shouldn't stay under the influence of salt and light just for you. It's not about just you. There's a bigger world than just you out there. You know that? It's a much bigger world. So if you say, oh man, my church tells me how to do it, I get up and spend my quiet time or a devotion time or whatever you want to call that thing, right? Praying, reading the Bible, whatever. I got to do that because I feel better about myself and I don't feel guilty because the church tells me I should or my grandfather told me I should or whatever, whatever reason you do that. This isn't just about you. Here's the deal. All of us are influencers. Every single person in this room, I don't care how introverted you think, I'm not a leader, I'm not an influencer. Yes, you are. Sociologists have studied this, and they say the most introverted person on this planet will influence at least 10,000 people in their lifetime. All right? So if you're Mr. or Mrs. Introvert here this morning, there's the deal. You're going to influence at least 10,000 people. So the question isn't, are you going to influence? The question is, how are you going to influence? So... If I don't spend time with God because I wake up one morning and I'm really busy or I just feel cross or, you know, whatever. I don't care what it might be. I'm having a bad day. I don't want to spend. I just, you know what? I don't, I don't need to do that. I'm just going to let it go. It's not just me that's being affected. You know that? Because then I go out in my life and I meet people. And if I haven't spent time with the salt and the light, then all those people have is me. That's all they're meeting is John. And you know what that means? They got a problem. Right? They got a problem. And if all people are meeting is you, then what's happening is the rest of the world is being affected. You know what? Every, every single person in this world wants to do something great. And you know what greatness is in the Bible? Greatness is when you can have the get beyond yourself and see, you know, this isn't just about me. I don't need to spend my quiet time because it's just about me. There's a world out there that needs salt and light. And I can't provide it, so i got to spend time with the salt and light. Now, where do we see this in Scripture? Well, we see it all over the place of how one person's life affects another. Let's just look at Romans 14, 7. It says, for none of us lives to themselves. None of us lives to ourselves, And none of us dies to himself alone. We are all influencers. The question is, how are we going to influence? Think about this. This... Adam and Eve made a mistake, and that influence of that mistake, we're told in the book of Romans, has corrupted, has negatively impacted the entire planet. In Genesis chapter 5, everybody, right before the great flood, Noah, Genesis chapter 6, check this out. We read through this lineage of people that were born. You get to one guy in Genesis chapter 5. His name is Enoch. And we're told this. We don't know hardly anything about Enoch, but we know this. It says, Enoch walked with God. And then it says, 
God took him and he was no more. So all we know is that Enoch had this really great relationship with God. Like this guy was salty, he was light, because he hung out with the salt and the light all the time. Now, think about this. I hadn't thought about this until a few months ago. It was shortly after the the removal of Enoch, that positive influence in the world, that the world spiraled downward until the point where God says, there's nothing but wickedness on this planet. And there's going to be a huge flood. Now, do we see any other examples of that? Yes, we do. Sodom and Gomorrah. So, Ab- so God comes to Abraham and he says, he says to Abraham, look, Sodom and Gomorrah um, is out of control. There's too much corruption there. The place is going to be destroyed. And so Abraham, he's thinking about, what is he thinking about? He's thinking about his nephew Lot who lives there. And he says, God, is there any way we could spare that city. He said, what if there's 50 righteous people? What's he saying? What if there's 50 people there who have a good influence? What if there's 50? Will you spare it for 50? And God says, all right, I'll do it for 50. And then what does he do next? It's kind of a cool conversation. It gives you a window in to, you know, sometimes we think in our conversation with God, we got to be all like prim and proper. So then Abraham says, okay, wait a minute, time out. What if there's just 45 and God says, I'll do it for 45. I'll spare it for it. Well, wait a minute. What if there's just 40? And they, he works him down by five people until he gets down to 10 people. He says, what if there's 10? And God says that there's 10 people there influenced by salt and light, righteous people. With their ten, the place will be spared. What does that say to us? There is a way. There is, there is a way a, to manage a process that God puts for us to kind of prevent things corrupting and falling apart. And it has to do with discipleship, and it has to do with staying under the influence. There's a restraining of evil and suffering in this world, and it's connected to this discipleship theme. This is what we read here. All right, let's move on to the next point. The second thing that we see in here is that we need to find our flocks. Find our flocks. Look what it says. 1 Peter chapter 5, he says, shepherd God's flock because you are an overseer. You need to shepherd. Now you say, but John, he's talking to pastors. I don't have a flock because I'm not a pastor. Well, what I want to suggest to you is that every single one of us in this room has been called to make disciples, which means every single one of us has a flock. There is somebody out there. What is, what is the discipler and a disciple? A discipler is somebody who has gained knowledge about God's word and they pass that knowledge along. It's as simple as that. And you're, you're very concerned about somebody else and you nurture them and you educate it. So you say, well, John, I know that much about the Bible. Well, there's somebody else that knows about that much. If you've been around church for, I'm hoping that you've learned a couple things in a year's time. There's something that you can pass on, and this is very important. What are sheep? Sheep are defenseless creatures, and they're prone to wander. And if you don't have your flock, remember, this isn't just about you. This isn't about you just signing up to be in a community group or something else and getting in your small group or whatever, right? This isn't just about you. This is what it means. It means that there is a flock or there's a a sheep or there's another person out there prone to wander and defenseless and they're in trouble because you're not and I'm not a part of that disciple-making process. That puts a different spin on it, doesn't it? And so Peter says, make sure that you oversee your flock. Shepherd your flock. Uh, I I, I was at a wedding this past summer uh, officiating at this wedding and I met this guy 
who uh, works for an organization. It's a global organization, and one of the big things they do is they work to fight against human trafficking. You know, the sex slave, the trade, that is something that has so deeply bothered me for years, and I've always wanted Grace Community Church, man, to do something. And we've brought in IGM, International Justice Mission, because they're headquartered here. And, you know, my thought has always been, man, we just, if we could get in with rescuing, particularly, you know, these kids and a lot of times young women, kids and young women, if we could get in and rescue them and get them out, how can we hands-on get into that? And so I, I told him, I told this guy, I didn't tell him all that yet. I just said, man, I want our church to be, a, how can we be a part of it? And before I started going down my line and saying anything, he said, look, and he started giving me all this data. And then he said this, here's it, here's it, listen to this. He said, John, I know it's sexy to talk about you know, getting involved in rescue efforts, like going into these brothels and these houses and like doing these rescues and it's very dangerous and it's exciting. You're like, you could make a movie out of it. It's very exciting. He said, but do you really want to be effective? Like, do you really want to prevent suffering on this planet? Because if you really want to be effective, here's how you do it. Prevention. He said, all of my work, all my study, everything I've looked at, prevention is the most effective way how to end that suffering for people. What do you do? I said, well, tell me. You get out there and people who are in a place, in areas where they are vulnerable to this kind of thing, you educate them. You educate, you educate children and you educate adults about the dangers there. And if you educate them, that is the most effective way to prevent that kind of suffering. I thought, wow. That's it. You know what's exciting? Mega churches are exciting. You know, big, and we do the music, and we have all this. But you know what? It doesn't sound so exciting about you being in your little community group or your little Bible study together and doing life together, does it? It doesn't sound exciting. But it's the most effective way at preventing suffering this planet. Because without us being connected together as a family, we are in a disconnected city, everybody. Highly disconnected city. And we blow in and out, blow in and out. But the most effective way for us to prevent it is for us to be in a small family together and to grow and to study God's word and to hold each other accountable and to build those relationships and to discuss God's word and to support and to encourage all of those things that happen within that discipleship family. That's what it's supposed to look like. And that is the best way because when you do that, you're more apt to stay under the influence of the salt and light. You're more apt to correctly apply in the scriptures. So if you're farther, if I'm farther down the pike from somebody else who maybe doesn't know as much of God's word, and I see that they're getting ready to make a mistake, I can say, you know what it said. Maybe this is what it says in Proverbs about this decision you're getting ready to make. And then I've just saved them from making a very diff- bad decision. Does that make sense? That is why it's so important that we find our flock. Not because the church tells me I should, but because there's others out there that are going to suffer unless I respond the way God wants me to respond. All right. Jesus here in Luke 9, 23, he goes and he says to what? To his disciples. He says, follow me. What did Jesus do? Well, Jesus went around, right? And he would preach to 5,000, but he discipled just 12. And so what did they do? What kind of life did they live? What did they went out and they made disciples? And you see that all over the place in the book of Acts. I put down a verse here, Acts eleven twenty six. You know, Christians were not called, we, everybody, we call Christians today, right? That's what the name for a Christian, it's a Christian. But that, that wasn't the case until Acts chapter 11 and Antioch first called Christians. Before that, they were called disciples. Now they say, well, that's just semantics, isn't it? That's a big semantic. You know why? 
because the focus and the understanding is completely, they take us in two different places. When I understand the true nature of discipleship and that I am a disciple of Jesus Christ, not that I am a Christian, right? It takes me and it makes me focus on something completely different. Discipleship by its nature, uh, discipleship by its nature is so highly relational. When I hear the words, let me see if I can use this board to make sense of it, where Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations. Oh, good, somebody erased that for me earlier. That was great. Uh, go and make disciples of all nations. Here's what I think. I think big. I think, okay, the whole world is my oyster, so to speak, and I'm just going to, whether I'm at Dairy Queen or McDonald's or I'm walking up and I'm just making disciples everywhere. You know, I pay a toll and I say, do you know Jesus? Right? You know what I'm saying? Jesus Christ preached to 5,000, but he discipled just 12. And if anybody could have discipled more than 12, Jesus would have been the person to do it. But that's where he stopped. So I look at, make disciples all night. Oh, the whole world's mine. That's not discipleship, everybody. And that's not what you and I have been called to by Jesus Christ to do. You realize that? So you're saying, you know, hey, man, I don't need to be... I don't need to find my little Bible study. I don't need to find my community group. I don't need to find my little family to grow together. You need to know this. This is the thing that Jesus Christ has called us to, to doing this. It is the best plan to deal with suffering in this planet. So Jesus Christ, he's got his 12. He doesn't have the whole world. He's got his 12, and he sinks his life into these guys over and over. You know what happens when you focus out too big? You lose all the power. It's too much. Anybody ever been to a circus before? Circus people? Anybody work in a circus? Don't raise your hand. Oh, we got a couple who raised their hand anyway. Good for you. Uh, so the lion tamer, you ever think about the lion tamer? You ever think about that guy with the lions and their lions? You know, he's in there and he's got his whip, right? And, and he's got the stool. And it never hit me till this past week, and I began to do a little research on this. I never thought about the stool before. I mean, the whip got me, but why the stool? I mean, the lion tamer, when he was running out to go get in the bin, was there not like a bat somewhere? I mean, because you're thinking, you know, was the stool just sitting there? And he thought, oh, well, I got to get something from my other hand, so let me pick up a stool. It didn't make sense. Ha, ah, with the stool. I'm thinking, forget the stool. How about a, how about a machine gun? You know? <laughs> so, but he picks up the stool, and he right in the lion's face. He's with the whip and this right in the face. Why? What's the deal with the stool? So I did a little research. And you know what it is? Lions like to focus on something. They like to focus. And when you shove the stool in their face like this with the little four legs shooting at their face, you know what they do? They see all four things coming at them, and it makes them try to focus on all four things at once. You know what happens to a lion when it tries to focus on more things than what it can actually focus on? They get docile. They just calm down. They don't know what to do. They get confused, and they are just rendered kind of almost powerless because they're trying to focus on too much. You want to focus on the whole world, making the whole world a disciple, because that's what Christ has called you to do. He's telling you, you're doing too much. If I had to do it all over again, now that I'm so old, if I had to do it all over again, I'd go back to the beginning of my ministry, and I'd do a lot of praying, and I'd find who it is that God's calling me to be in a relationship with, and I would sink my life into those people over 
and over and over again. You know why? Not because it's going to benefit me so much, although it will. But here's why I do it. Because it is the best biblical plan of attack for dealing with a world filled of suffering. It is the plan of God to deal with all the junk that we see in this life. Now, last point. Check your attitude. Check your attitude. So here's what he says. He says, all right, I need you to stay personally influenced by the salt and light. And you need to all find your flock. Now, here's the thing. Check your attitude at the door. If you're doing this thing because the church is telling you to do it, or Peter's saying, if you're doing it because I'm telling you to do it, then don't do it. Don't do it at all. Philippians 2.5 says, you, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Don't do it because you're being forced to do it. Do it because, once again, you have, you have allowed greatness that we read about in the Bible to kind of invade your soul and your heart. And you say, oh man, I see it now. Me staying under the influence of salt and light isn't just about me. Me getting in a community group isn't just about me. It's about something bigger than me. It's about God's plan for this earth. It's about the restraining of evil. It's about growing. It's about touching other people's lives. It's about something bigger than me. When you think about spending time with God or you think about getting into a Bible study or community group or something like that, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? I don't have time, I'm too busy, whatever it is. Think about what's the attitude behind that. And Peter says, check your attitude at the door. Because you've got to do it for something much bigger than yourself. Now, let me conclude with this. We are launching new community groups, and there's a thing in your um, bulletin about that. Not today, we're not launching it. We're launching it like next week. This is kind of just the shot across the bow. I said earlier that what Jesus Christ did is he kind of switched things up. Before, people would go to the rabbi and say, can I follow you? And then Jesus Christ turned that around a little bit and he said, you know what? Instead, he's going to go up on the mountain. He's going to pray and pray and pray. And then he's going to figure out where God, you know, who God wants him to call, who the Holy Spirit's saying to call. And then he calls that group around. And God's been dealing with me probably since the first of the year. So I guess it's been eight months now. And so, and I just told you a few months ago, I had to do things different. I'd do them different. So here's what God's touched me in my own life. I've, just, I've been praying and praying and praying about this thing for quite some time. And so what God's put on my heart is I've just, I, I called a group of guys and asked them to pray about it. I said, after, after a serious prayer, I contacted some guys. I said, hey, you know, I want to know if maybe you want to be in a group together. I want you to pray about it. Had all of them pray about it. And what we're going to do is my group, and we're going to be a family. We are going to be a family, and we're going to discuss, and we're going to study, and we're going to apply the Scriptures. We're going to pray for each other. We're going to hold each other accountable. We're going to deal with the Scriptures. We're going to disciple each other. We're going to serve together. And I feel like God is taking Grace Community Church into a little bit deeper of a place. And one of the reasons why is this suffering thing isn't going away, is it? And what makes me so heavy is when I talk to so many of you all 
and I hear about whatever's going on in your life or somebody else, you know their life and the pain. And here is the best remedy to smack suffering in the mouth and to back it up just a little bit according to the scriptures. It's not about me. It's not just about me. But it's about God's plan in this world, a way to deal with all the junk that happens in life. It is the most effective way, not the most sexy way, but it's the most effective way for dealing with the junk in this planet. And I just ask you to consider, what is God saying to you? What's God saying you do? What's he calling you to do? And how can you make a difference in this world? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for your word. I thank you, God, for your uh, patience with me, with us, as we try to figure out what your word and what you, Holy Spirit, are saying to us. Help us to hear this morning. Give us ears to hear. All of us, our hearts are broken by the suffering either that we directly or indirectly experience in this life. Some of the stories that we hear that happen daily around us are just overwhelming and it's not going away. But God, it seems like you do give us something that we can do about it. We can be a disciple and make a disciple. So Lord, what do you have to say to us today? Please help us to be open to hear that. In Christ's name, amen.